Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, on September 2nd, 2014, Leon Brown and Henry McCollum were released from prison after 30 years. Henry, Brown, or Henry McCollum had spent all 30 of those years on death row. The two men were half-brothers. They had been convicted of the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl in 1984 and sent to prison. Brown was 15 at the time of the crime and McCollum was 19. Both men half-brothers have intellectual disabilities and were interrogated under duress until they confessed the crime, but they weren't guilty. And in 2010, Brown turned to the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission for help. The commission took the DNA evidence that was still available from the crime scene and analyzed it and discovered that they could not have committed the crime, that in fact the one who did commit the crime was already in prison for a similar crime that he had committed about that same time. And so the judge uh, exonerated them, threw out the, the guilty verdict. The attorney general agreed that there was no evidence that would merit pressing any other charges against them, and so the men were finally set free. McCullum's attorney observed about his 30 years on death row. Can you imagine that, 30 years on death row? He said, it's terrible or terrifying that our justice system allowed two intellectually disabled children to go to prison for a crime they had nothing to do with and then to suffer there for 30 years. Henry watched dozens of people be hauled away for execution. He'd become so distraught that he had to be put in isolation. It's impossible to put into words what these men have been through and how much they have lost. Can't imagine spending 30 years on death row for a crime you didn't commit. I guess the only thing worse would have been if Henry McCollum had been put to death before the DNA evidence had exonerated him. And we look at a story like that, and on the one hand, I think we say, oh, it's horrible that something like that should happen. It's a great concern to us because, after all, we believe that everybody deserves equal treatment under the law. It's disturbing to think that there might be innocent people right now on death row. But on the other hand, it's hard to get too concerned because none of us know Henry McCollum personally. And so we hear a story like this and we're likely to say, you know, tsk, tsk, it's terrible that happened to that poor man. Nobody should have to go through that. But because it doesn't affect us personally and because we don't know Henry McCollum personally, uh, we move on to the next news story pretty readily and we forget about what happened to a guy like Henry McCollum. But if that had happened to someone you love, you'd care very deeply about that story, wouldn't you? Well, as a matter of fact, it has happened to someone we love, someone we all love, because the greatest miscarriage of justice in all human history 
happened to our Jesus. And worst of all, we played a part. In recent weeks, we've been following the plot that was hatched to have Jesus put to death, the plot that God will will turn around and use for our salvation. We followed Jesus to the upper room where he celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, and it was there that Jesus announced that one of his own men would betray him into the hands of sinful men. We followed him last week into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed and prepared himself for what was to come while his disciples slept. And then we saw how Jesus, uh, Judas came and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. He was arrested. The disciples fled, uh, dropped away from him just as Jesus said they would, and Jesus willingly went into custody. Today, we pick up Mark's account of the, of the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection with, with the story of two sham trials that Mark reports here. First, the trial at the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious authorities, and then next week we'll look at the trial before Pilate, the Roman authority who, who put Jesus ultimately to death. And Mark is showing us thereby that Jews and Gentiles alike are, are responsible for the death of Jesus. We both bear responsibility for the miscarriage of justice that took place. And as Mark tells the story of Jesus' first trial, the trial before the Sanhedrin, it, it's almost as if he's portraying two trials taking place side by side, right there at the same time at, court, at Caiaphas' house. While Jesus is being tried by the Sanhedrin upstairs, Peter is facing a trial of his own down in the courtyard below. And all of it together makes it clear that Jesus endured what he did not deserve. Jesus endured what he did not deserve There may have been a trial that day, but there was no justice. There was a show of giving him his day in court, but there was no real attempt to give him a fair hearing. And Mark shows us here in these two trials, if you will, how Jesus didn't deserve what they did to him, two ways that he endured what he did not deserve. Now, as I mentioned, there's an upstairs and a downstairs aspect to this passage that you can see right in the first two verses of the text where it says in verse 53, Mark 14, verse 53 is where we begin. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together, the whole Sanhedrin, the whole ruling council, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So the upstairs aspect of this trial has to do with how Jesus is treated by his enemies up there in Caiaphas' residence. The downstairs aspect has to do with how Jesus is treated by one of his best friends in the courtyard down below. Let's begin upstairs. Here's the first way that Jesus endured what he did not deserve. He was condemned by those who should have known better. He was condemned by those who should have known better. And here is the Messiah sent by God on trial for his life before Israel's religious and spiritual leaders. There's no doubt about who he is. Mark has made it clear from the very first verse of the book. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark told us in verse 1 of chapter 1. And everything that Mark has done from that point forward has substantiated that claim. Mark has shown us how he made the lame to walk and how he made the deaf to hear, the blind to see, and even raised the dead. He has calmed storms on the Sea of Galilee, fed thousands of people in the wilderness, and liberated a man from a legion of demons. 
He has taught as one with authority and has fulfilled prophecy by riding into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. Even blind Bartimaeus could see who he was. Remember blind Bartimaeus back there by the roadside in Jericho calling out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He identified him as the Messiah, son of David, that coming one who would be a descendant of David. That The crowds on Palm Sunday identified him the same way. Hosanna to the son of David, they said. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bartimaeus could see it, the Palm Sunday crowd could see it, but the Sanhedrin are having none of it. None of it. To them, he's a troublemaker, a pretender, and a threat to their power. They were the teachers of Israel, the Bible scholars who should have known better, but they can't wait to be done with him. So they plot to arrest him and try him and have him put to death but they've come to a verdict before they've even made a case against them. Look at verse 55. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. You know, if you're going to petition Pilate to have Jesus put to death, and that's what they had to do because they had no authority to execute the death penalty themselves, They'd have to go to Pilate and demonstrate that here's a man who is charged with a legitimate capital offense, and now here's the evidence that proves the charge. But they have neither. They don't have the evidence, and they don't have the charge. This is a verdict. They've already determined he's worthy of death. This is a verdict in search of a case, a case in search of witnesses, and they've got none of it. It says in verse 56, for many bore witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They've got a verdict in search of a case. No credible witnesses, even the witnesses they have, can't come to agreement on what he supposedly said or did that was deserving the death penalty. They contradict each other. So, some resort to twisting Jesus' own words to try to use against him. Look at verse 57 where it says, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, the destruction of a temple was a capital offense. If you destroyed a temple, the Romans were going to execute you. That was for sure. But Jesus hasn't destroyed any temple. He's talked about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but he didn't say he was going to do it. That was going to be left to the Romans themselves to do in 70 AD. What they're talking about here is something that Jesus said almost two years before this, and they've twisted it. Because when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up again, he wasn't talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about his own body. He was talking about his death and resurrection in a metaphorical sense. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And so they're basically saying he's guilty of making terroristic threats. He, he said he's going to destroy this place. Claims that he can rebuild it in three days. They did their best to use his words, to twist his words and use them against him. But look at verse 59. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Couldn't even get their story straight on this. In other words, they got nothing on him, nothing. So the high priest resorts to interrogating him directly. Hopefully he can get Jesus to trip him up in his words and to say something that they all can use against him. And so it says that the high priest stood there in the midst of them, verse 60, and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 
You see, basically what the high priest is saying is we can't make heads or tails of what these witnesses are, are saying. They're, they contradict each other all over the place. But what do you say for yourself, Jesus? This is serious nonsense they're accusing you of. I just love the way Jesus responds. Look at verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. I wonder if this point he kind of just stood there and shrugged and shook his head as if to say, really? Is this all you got? I, I don't even know how to respond to this gibberish. And then the high priest has a stroke of genius. He asks what could be the kill shot question if only they can get Jesus to answer it. A question that could get Jesus into huge trouble if he gives the answer they're expecting. The problem is, it's a question that Jesus had always danced around before, at least in public. He never really spoke much about it, preferring instead to let his miracles do the talking. Verse 61 continues and says, And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Now, as I said, Jesus typically downplayed his identity as Messiah, in public at least. The reason why was because he knew that if he went around saying that he was the Messiah, people would get the wrong idea about what that meant. They would say, oh, he, he's the guy that's going to build an army and go take on Rome. That wasn't the kind of Messiah he wanted to be at all. And so he went about his work preaching and teaching and doing miracles, showing them what Messiah actually looked like in hopes that they would conclude for themselves that, yeah, he's the Christ, but he's not the kind of Christ that we thought he would be or the kind of Christ we were expecting. When he cast out demons, the demons knew who he was. Remember those occasions? When he cast out demons and the demons would say, what do you have to do with us, Jesus, the Son of God? Have you come to torment us before our time? They knew who he was. But Jesus would tell them, be quiet, because he didn't want their foul testimony about his true identity. When the disciples finally figured out who he was in chapter 8, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. You didn't come up with this on your own. The Father has revealed it to you. And now that you know who I am, I, I need you to keep the lid on it for a while. Don't go around telling anybody. So he was very coy about this in public, very clear about it in private with his disciples. He did accept the acclaim of the crowds on Palm Sunday, as they declared him the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those were very messianic kinds of ascriptions. He did allow that, but here is his first public declaration of his identity before those he knows will use it against him. It's as if he sees they're bumbling around trying to make a case against him. He figures, you know what? These guys are never going to get there. I got to help them out. So he gives them what they need, and he gives it to them in capital letters. The high priest says, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Let that hang there for a moment. I am. What's that remind you of? The Old Testament, right? The burning bush. How when Moses was standing before the burning bush and God was telling him to go set his people free from Egypt. He said, who should I tell him sent me? And God identified himself as I am. I am who I am. You tell him that. And so when Jesus says, I am, make no mistake about it. He's making a clear connection to the Father, his oneness with the Father. I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Not only am I the Christ standing right here before you, the Son of the Great I Am, but one day you will see me, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, coming from the clouds of heaven. This is right out of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. It's a prophecy that Daniel made 500 years before the time of Christ, and it's a prophecy about the enthronement of Messiah and the day he will be given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom. Jesus is saying, hey, guys, remember what Daniel saw in his vision of the end times? Yeah, I'm that guy. Now, what the high priest of Israel should have done with this, as, and the learned scholars who were all standing there when Jesus said this, what they should have done is evaluate the claim according to Scripture, right? They should have said, well, what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says that when Messiah comes, the blind will see. Check. Scripture says that when Messiah comes, the lame will leap like a deer. Check. Scripture says that when Messiah comes, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Check. The Scripture says that Messiah will come to us, the king riding humbly on a donkey into Jerusalem. Hmm. That happened just four days ago. Check. If anyone should have known who Jesus was, it was these guys. Instead, Verse 63 says, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The very ones who should have recognized him condemn him as a blasphemer, and the irony is that in doing so, they themselves become the blasphemers for deriding and abusing the Christ sent by God, the Son of the Blessed One. Imagine Jesus being spit upon and struck in the face simply for telling the truth about who he was, something the leaders of Israel of all people should have known. You know, it's a very sad thing when people who should know better reject Jesus, close their hearts and minds to him. I think of a guy by the name of Charles Templeton, who was a close associate of Billy Graham in the early days, in the late 1940s. Billy Graham and, and Templeton went on a preaching tour of Europe with Youth for Christ. They were quite a hit, spoke to large crowds all over Europe. Templeton's star was on the rise. It was like Billy Graham and Templeton were on parallel tracks. And, and together, you know, they were going to have an incredible ministry until Templeton started having intellectual doubts about the faith. He started to doubt the authority of Scripture. And then he walked away from the faith altogether. And not only that, but he made an unsuccessful attempt to, to persuade Billy Graham to do the same. Of course, Billy would have none of it. Went on to be used of God to preach to millions of people around the world and and win millions of people to Christ. But Templeton uh, always looked down on Billy Graham after that, said he felt sorry for him because he had uh, sacrificed his intellectual integrity, had closed his mind to the truth. Well, Templeton resigned from ministry and became a novelist and a news commentator and later wrote a book by the title, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Years later, 
Journalist and pastor Lee Strobel went and interviewed Charles Templeton. He was 83 years old and suffering from Alzheimer's, but he still had lucid moments and sometimes could carry on brilliant conversations, and this was one of those moments. And he said that Templeton revealed some lessons, or some of the reasons, rather, why he left the faith. He said, I started considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill, more often than not, painfully, all kinds of people, the ordinary, the decent, and the rotten. And it just became crystal clear to me that it is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a deity who loves. Can't believe in a God like that. Strobel then asked him about Jesus and was absolutely surprised by Templeton's answer. Templeton said he believed that Jesus lived, but he didn't believe that Jesus really considered himself to be God. I think Mark's gospel would beg to differ. Templeton said that, well, Jesus was the greatest human being who has ever lived, a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. He's the most important thing in my life. I know it might, it might sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. How tragic is that? I miss him. At that, Templeton's eyes filled with tears and he wept freely, waving his hand, indicating that he had nothing more to say. What a tragic thing it is when someone who should know better rejects Jesus. Could it be you're one of those who should know better? Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but you're not walking with Christ today. You know what the Bible teaches about Jesus, but you've chosen to reject the faith. Maybe a professor once told you, ah, it's a bunch of garbage, and you took his word for it without ever bothering to seriously look into the claims of, of the faith for yourself. Because you'd want an excuse just to party and not be bothered thinking about Jesus. You, you walked away from him for no other reason than your own willful desire to call your own shots without the interference of one who died for the sin that now holds you in its grip. If that describes you, I'd say, join the club. Take your place with the high priest and learned men of Israel who should have known better but rejected Jesus and sought to be rid of him once for all. Don't let that happen to you. Come back to him before it's too late. Don't end up like that old man, Templeton, weeping because you somehow miss Jesus. It's amazing what the human race has put Jesus through, what we put him through. Jesus endured what he did not deserve. He willingly endured what he did not deserve. He was condemned by those who should have known better. And here's the second way he endured what he didn't deserve. He was condemned by those who should have known better, and he was denied by one who did know better. He was denied by one who did know better. We move now to the, the downstairs trial, the trial that Peter is facing in the courtyard down below. Verse 66 says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, 
I neither understand nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. That should have been Peter's first warning. Jesus had told him before the rooster crows a second time, you're going to deny me three times tonight, Peter. Peter couldn't believe it. But now he's denied Jesus once. And it says, and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. There's two. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, blankety, blank, 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 I don't know this man of whom you speak. David Garland observes that Peter's trial in the courtyard is a parody of Jesus' own. He may have remembered his rash pledge to die with Jesus and tries to follow through, although he only follows from a distance. He then sits with Jesus' captors while Jesus is under fire upstairs. Peter warns himself by the fire downstairs. Jesus makes a confession under immense pressure and hostility that seals his fate, and Peter capitulates under the greatest, uh, the, the gentlest of pressure to save himself. To extend that contrast even further, consider the following. When Jesus is being tried upstairs, Peter is facing a trial of his own downstairs in the courtyard. While Jesus is being tried by the Sanhedrin, Peter is being tried by a servant girl. While Jesus keeps silent in the face of false accusations, Peter blabbers on denying what's true. Jesus finally reveals the truth that will cost him his life, while Peter conceals the truth that will save his life in order to save his life. And the worst of it all is this. The high priest and Sanhedrin should have known better when they condemned him, but Peter absolutely did know better when he denied him. He'd walked with Jesus for three years. He'd witnessed countless miracles. He'd walked with Jesus on water. He was there when Jesus raised the dead. He was the first of the apostles to declare him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. He had heard the voice from heaven on the mountain declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. He had promised he would never deny Jesus. He would even die with him if need be. And here he is denying three times that he even knows him. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down and wept. You know, when that rooster crows, it's not just Peter who feels the pain of that moment. Jesus, too, heard the rooster. In one of the other Gospels, it tells us that when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. Jesus knows at that very moment that one of his best friends has just denied him for the third time. He's being beaten and spit upon and has to endure this on top of it all. He didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve any of it. He didn't deserve how he was treated by his enemies, and he certainly didn't deserve how he was treated by his friends. Jesus endured so much that he didn't deserve. And to Mark's readers in Rome, who were potentially facing persecution of their own, as well as to us today, this is a plea. It's saying, don't let this happen to Jesus again. 
Hold fast to your confession. Let's not keep putting Jesus through this. He didn't deserve what his enemies did to him. He doesn't deserve what we do when we deny him, whether we deny him by our words or whether we deny him in our actions. That's certainly one takeaway from this passage. But I think what has even greater impact is the realization of why he did it. Why did he so willingly endure what he didn't deserve? And the answer is, he did it for us. He did it for us. He, the sinless one, who was innocent of all charges, he, the one there was no reason on heaven or earth to kill, he voluntarily endured the condemnation of his enemies and the denial of his friends. He voluntarily took the derision and hatred of the very ones for whose sin he would die. He willingly endured what he did not deserve, and he did it for us. He took the punishment that should have been ours. When I was in the first grade, I had a teacher by the name of Miss Landry. She was an older woman. In fact, she had been a missionary earlier in life, and Uh, having retired from the mission field, she came to work in our public school, and I had the good fortune of having this godly woman as my first grade teacher. My parents were thrilled to know that as a first grader, I was going to have a believer uh, for my my teacher. Now, these were the days when, you know, corporal punishment was still allowed in school. Anybody remember those days? Yeah, old folks like me? Where, you know, if you were out of and it wasn't just Catholic schools, folks. Or public schools did this, too. Remember, if you, uh, if you were out of line, you could get a swat with a ruler across your knuckles. Or in Miss Landry's case, she not only had the ruler, she had what she called the North Wind Stick. It was this, this cane that she had won at a county fair, you know, one of those ring toss games, and it lands on the, on the top of the cane. And, and then you take the cane home. It's this handle with a stick. It was painted blue. I can still see it. And it was called the North Wind Stick because if you got out of line and you got that across your backside, it would sting like the North Wind, she said. Now, normally, you know, this punishment was dished out on the fly. If, if kids got out of line, well, she would correct them right on the spot, you know, come up front, get a swat with the ruler. If it was really bad, then you'd get a swat with the North Wind Stick. I'm, I'm not endorsing any of this, and I know there'd be lawsuits for this these days, but this is just the way it was, right? So um, there was this one day where instead of bringing kids up front and summarily giving them their, their punishment, instead she said, today I'm just going to put your name on the board and we'll deal with you at the end of the day. Well, there were three names that went up on the board that day, and those Poor souls had to live all day long wondering what was going to happen to them at the end of the day. And I remember there were two, two boys, I think it was Mike and Tom, and I remember the, the girl's name was Nancy. It was Nancy Glenn. Her, her name was up there. You could tell this, this really made an impression on me. So she said at the end of the day, okay, now it's time to deal with those three who, who deserve punishment, and I'm going to call them up to the front of the class. And they each came up, and they kind of stood there, you know, in line. And she said, now today, instead of me punishing you, I'm going to take the punishment that you deserve. And you're going to administer it. I knew where she was going with this because I knew Jesus and she was giving us the gospel. I could, I could tell. She never even had to bring Jesus' name into it, but she was showing us the gospel. 
And so she handed the ruler to uh, the first boy and put her hand on the desk, and he rather gleefully whacked Miss Landry and walked off with a smile on his face. The lesson was pretty much lost on that guy. The next boy was a little more reticent, and he, he hit Miss Landry and kind of walked off looking a little ashamed. And then she handed the ruler to Nancy Glenn, and Nancy couldn't bring herself to do it. Nancy just was humiliated at the prospect of, of punishing her teacher for something she had done. And she said, no, Miss Landry, I can't. Miss Landry insisted, no, Nancy, this is the way it's got to be. I'm taking your punishment today, and you've got to administer it. Finally, Nancy relented, and, and just as gently as she could get away with, she tapped Miss Landry on the back of the hand and, and walked away looking very somber. And then Miss Landry told us a story. And I'd heard this story, too. I'd heard it in church. It was an old preacher story by a preacher named A.C. Dixon who came from the hills of West Virginia. And the story went like this. So there was a one-room uh, schoolroom in uh, the hills of West Virginia where the students were poor and very rowdy. And it required the sternest of disciplinarians to keep those students in line. And so they had this male teacher who kept a leather strap on the wall and wasn't afraid to use it. And one day after lunch, he began to interrogate the class about Sally Jane's lunch that had gone missing. And who knows anything about Sally Jane's lunch? You better come forth now because if you don't, you're the lowest of the low. And he, he really laid it on thick. And finally, one little guy in the back of the room started crying. It was uh, a little Jimmy, a little Billy. And little Billy had come from the poorest family in the whole area. And he said, I did it, teacher, but I was hungry. Nevertheless, the teacher said, what you did was wrong and you must be punished. So you come on up here, little Billy. You're going to get what's coming to you. So little Billy came up front and the teacher required him to take off his shirt. He leaned over the desk, grabbed the strap, leather strap off the wall and raised his hand over that little boy when a husky voice from the back of the room said, hold it, teacher. It was another student named Big Jim. Big Jim said, teacher, don't you lay a hand on him. I'm going to take his punishment for him. And so Big Jim came forward up the aisle, taking off his shirt as he came to the front of the room. And the teacher was shocked that Big Jim would take little Billy's place, but he allowed it to go forward. And Big Jim leaned over the desk and the teacher laid that strap across his back so hard that it brought tears to even Big Jim's eyes. And then she said, little Billy never forgot the day that Big Jim took his place. And I can imagine that those three students, I can still remember it, and I wasn't one of them, but I can imagine those three students will never forget the day Miss Landry took their place. And may we never forget the day Jesus took ours. Let's bow in prayer. You know, it might be that you're a, a believer, but you know that you've pulled a Peter. And somewhere along the way, you, you've denied Jesus, maybe not in your words, but maybe in your actions, you've been living in such a way that your actions betray that you really know him.
Maybe for you, what's needed is to just take some time and, and, re, and repent of, of those things that we do that, that continue to hurt the Lord Jesus, that continue to punish him in ways he doesn't deserve. But I want to speak especially to those of you who are here and you're thinking to yourself for the first time, I, I'm, I'm really starting to put this together, the significance of what it means that Jesus took my place. I, I've got this sin that deserved to be punished and Jesus, the sinless one, stepped in and took my place, took the punishment that should have been mine, took my sin and died for it, paid the ransom that sets me free. And you're beginning to understand with greater appreciation all that Jesus endured that he didn't deserve, but you did. And he did it for you. And the scripture says that Jesus not only died for our sin, but he rose from the dead on the third day, victor over sin and death, and he's able to give forgiveness and eternal life, new life in Christ to all who believe in his name. And you're realizing that, you know what, you haven't yet, with great intention, said yes to Jesus, to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I need you to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. Thank you for dying for my sin. Because that's what honors the Lord Jesus most of all, is when instead of thinking that we can do it on our own, we say, I can't do it. I need you to do it. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. What honors Jesus is when we avail ourselves of that incredible sacrifice he made for us. And the way you do that is by faith, is by trusting Jesus to be your, your Savior and Lord, the one who forgives your sin and leads you through life. And if you're ready to say yes to Jesus today, I'd urge you to, to pray something like this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I deserve that punishment. But I thank you that you sent Jesus to take my place, to pay the, the penalty of sin that I deserve to pay. I thank you for his death on the cross, for raising him from the dead, for the possibility of forgiveness of sin and new life with you, Lord God. I put my faith and trust in Jesus to be my rescuer from sin, my leader for life. Right here, right now, as best I know, I'm saying, yes, Lord Jesus, you come in, you wash me clean, you take over. I want that life that only you can give. The life you died that I could have it. Now, if that's the prayer of your heart and you're saying yes to Jesus for the first time, would you slip your hand up so I can pray for you? Is there anybody? Thank you, thank you. Anyone else? Father, we thank you for the new life that is ours in Christ, for the forgiveness we have through faith in him. We thank you that 
Jesus endured what he didn't deserve and he did it for us. He took our place, suffered the penalty of our sin so that we can be set free and have new life with you. And Lord, I pray for those who've raised their hands today. For some maybe who are too timid to raise their hands, but they're saying yes right now in their hearts. And I thank you, Lord, for each one, for the work that you're doing. And pray, Lord, that right now you drive down deep into their hearts the understanding that he who believes has eternal life. That when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Impress upon them, Lord, the truth that you will never leave them nor forsake them. Help them to, to live in the fullness of this good news to have that, the fullness of life that you mean for us to live in Christ. Thank you, Lord, all of us. We thank you for Jesus, for what he endured for us. May we now in gratitude live lives that honor him and bring him glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.